This episode of Landmine Radio is sponsored by Dittman Research. Do you know what the most valuable thing in the world is? High-quality information. Because high-quality information informs much better decision-making. Dittman Research has been providing high-quality information to Alaska's leading businesses, organizations, and campaigns for 50 years. Do you really know what Alaskans think about your company or your issue? How about your clients, your shareholders, or your employees? Hire Dittman Research and find out what's really going on. DittmanResearch.com All right, folks, we're back here, joined by uh, attorney, local attorney Robin Brenna. How you doing? I'm doing well, thank you, Jeff. Good to, good to have you here. Well, it's, um, a, it's a pleasure to be here. So I want to talk about, there's an oil tax initiative that you've been working on. Uh, I want to talk about that later. But first, it's kind of interesting. So you're a local attorney, and right now it's Brenna Bell Walker, like Bill Walker. That's true. For, and he was your partner before, right? Uh, no, I used to work with Bill. <clears throat> But we were never in the same law firm before. Okay. So he joined the firm recently. But before that, it was Brennabel Clarkson, like the Attorney General Clarkson. That's true, too. So you, you've, uh, you've kind of had the gamut of <laughs> politicos in the, in the firm. You have, I was on the website. You have quite a few people working there, right? Yeah. We have, uh, we have about 25 people in the law firm. We have uh, 10 attorneys. Most of the people are very longtime Alaskans. I think we have uh, I think we have about 450 years of Alaska legal experience in the firm, wow. and that was before we uh, before we added uh, Bill Walker. So you're so. you're from Alaska, but you went to school. We don't have a law school here, so you went to school. looks like you had uh, kind of a little jealous. You have the MBA, you have the JD, and you have the, what's the other one? The LL. <laughs> LL. Okay. Well, first, I, I grew up in Skagway. And, and, oh, really? Yeah, and I know I know you spent at least a summer in Skagway. I did, yeah, I spent. I yeah. lived there for uh, almost five months in oh, 2008. Oh, okay. I had a little store there on the right off. I, I learned if you're ever going to do a store and you, you don't go off, you don't you go you don't go off Broadway. Yeah. You got to be on because I say why why do they keep walking past my store? <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, you want to be on Broadway in Skagway, and <clears throat> in our family's legacy building is the Pack Train, and it's on Fourth and Broadway. Oh. Yeah, I it's know, the yeah. tallest building in town. I know and, that building. Yeah, and um, <clears throat> and so it was. Uh, its legacy is is that it was the uh, oldest uh, established bar business in Alaska, and they started in the White Pass uh, Trail days. So, my dad bought it in 1950. Uh, wow! And that's the business that I grew up in, and and uh, so yeah, I'm a I'm a local boy from Skagway. Did your dad, was your dad from there? Did he move there? No, he uh, he came up uh, in World War II uh, with the army and helped build the Alcan. And my mother was a Canadian school teacher in Peace River Country, Alberta. And they met in Whitehorse and then moved down to Skagway, and that's where we were raised. Wow, it's crazy. Yeah, I, I love Skagway. I, I, I really <laughs> it was a great time being there, and it was it was crazy how I got there right before the tourism started. So it was I think maybe less than a thousand year round residents, but then you know come May June it was like. All the workers, seasonal. I mean, you'd have three thousand, and then on the peak ship day, you'd have fifteen thousand. Oh people. yeah, you get those ships coming in. You get four or five ships in in a day. They have five thousand tourists on a ship, and you can fill up the town pretty fast. When, yeah. I, when I grew up there, it was uh, primarily a transportation corridor. The train went all the way to Whitehorse and served the mines, and so I, I, I worked my way through school, working on the White Pass and Yukon Railroad, and and. Uh, <clears throat> Uh, 
So yeah, that's my hometown. It's a little different. I was spent the last session in Juneau, and Skagway is a little different because you can actually get out. So you have to go to Canada, but you can you can drive away. Where in Juneau, you're kind of trapped. Yeah. Well, when I grew up in Skagway, they didn't have a road out of town. They they put the road out of town uh, while I was there. And oh, really? Yeah, I went out. Uh, they the uh, so. But uh, yeah, there is a road out of town uh, now. Yes. So what? When did when did you or why did you decide to go into go into law or become a, become a lawyer? Well, it's a it's a, it's it's a, when I left Skagway, I, I went to a little uh, college in in Florida called New College. I ended up getting a degree in psychology and did a thesis on mental imagery and cognition in Sarasota, Florida. And then I was trying to decide what direction I wanted to go in. I spent a year at the in Seattle. Uh, I spent time at the University of Washington, and I decided I wanted to go to law school. I was trying to decide between law school and business school, and so I did both. And I entered Willamette and got my MBA and my law degree from Willamette. There's quite a few people in Alaska who went to Willamette Law School. I've met quite a few friends. And there like are that. there are more attorneys that graduated from Willamette in Alaska than from any other single law school. Well, I believe that because yeah. I, I know so many people that are lawyers that went to Willamette. So. Yeah, and, and today I'm on the board of trustees for Willamette University. Oh, nice. Yeah, and so I go down there regularly, and sometimes I uh, give guest lectures uh, uh, at the law school. Yeah, I saw in your bio school. you do some you do some lectures or teaching a little bit. Yes, yes, I do. When you went to Florida from Skagway, people must have been like, what the hell is Skagway? Yeah, well, it was uh, it's a long way from home uh, when I was uh, when I started at uh, New College. There's no question about it. So when you finished your law school, um, you came back to Alaska right well, away? Or? Well, I went to University of Miami and I got a legal magister and LLM in real estate development and finance law. And so they have uh, it's a relatively small program. There's not a whole lot of us. They graduate about ten a year, I think. And then I decided, uh, you know, Alaska always felt, always was home for me, and I wanted to come back and see if there was a job here for me. And so I came back, and I started at the law firm of uh, Atkins and Conway Bell and Gannon, which oh. was an excellent law firm. My uh, friend, uh, you probably know Neil O'Donnell. Oh, of course, he's I a very Neil. good friend of mine. So Margaret Stock, I know, and I, I met years ago, and um, I love Neil. He's great. Uh, he's a great guy, and it's uh, and it had uh, some of the finest uh, accumulation of attorneys that uh, I've ever worked around, and think very highly of uh, of all the people that I worked with there. Then in uh, 1988, I decided to uh, leave there and start my own law firm. <clears throat> and uh, there was two people I was speaking with: uh, Frank Nosek and uh, Jess Bell. Uh, Jess Bell was formerly a partner with uh, Atkinson Conway Bell and Gannon. And they had said if I ever wanted to do anything, to talk to them. And so they found out I was talking to each other. So the three of us uh, went into business together, and I opened my law firm What kind uh, of 1988. What kind of law were you doing? Because I know you've done a lot of oil and gas stuff, but were you doing that back then, or were you doing other kind of, other kind of law? Uh, <clears throat> I've done a range of things, but uh, uh, commercial and transactional was uh, where I kind of started. I did a lot of the commercial practice at Atkinson Conway Bell and Canyon. And then when I went on my own, I, I, I started doing more and more oil and gas litigation-related work. I asked, uh, it's funny, I asked Neil, because Neil was a partner, and I said, why don't you have O'Donnell? He said, well, you know, at some point you have, you just got to, like, stop with the name. <laughs> you yeah, can't yeah. keep changing. <laughs> yeah, exactly. 
Did, were you doing? Did you do anything with? I think you did some stuff with Exxon Valdez, right? Because that was uh, I didn't. Uh, that's about the only major oil and gas case in Alaska that I haven't been involved in, and I uh, I avoided it uh, on purpose. You had started '88, so it happened basically right after you. It did. <clears throat> and when I when I opened my firm, I I started with I had 110 clients and and uh, cases, and uh, uh, and it's been uh, uphill from there. So what what was your Kind of where, where did did you start the oil and gas stuff with your new firm, or had you done a little bit did in the past, or was that kind of a new venture? Well, um, all of the above. Uh, I had started working on oil and gas matters when I was with uh, Atkinson Conway Bell and Ganyan, and then I continued that uh, in, with my new firm with those clients. One of the uh, first major cases that I started with was trying to get uh, fair transportation rates on the Trans-Alaska Pipeline System. At the, time, <clears throat> at the time that there was a settlement agreement in place between the state and the TAPS owners, and they were making between 100 and 130% return per year uh, on, their, uh, on their transportation. At the time, Conoco uh, left Alaska, uh, left abandoned their Milne Point uh, field, because they couldn't make any money in Alaska because the cost of using the Trans-Alaska Pipeline was so high and such a barrier to entry. So uh, we, we took it on and, uh, and got taps, uh, got fair rates on taps for independent shippers. So the, the, the company is, uh, I guess, Alieska, there's a tariff, right? Yes. That they say, okay, you have to produce oil in the North Slope and it has to get to Valdez and there's a, a cost of, of that transport. But there's been... I guess historically there's been a debate about how much that how yeah. much that costs. Well, right? how you determine the rate and what's a fair rate and the standard is a just and reasonable rate. And uh, after, as a result of our litigation, the uh, Regulatory Commission of Alaska, which was then the APUC, uh, they held that the uh, TAPS owners had overcollected $13.4 billion in transportation tariffs. Uh, since uh, <clears throat> oil started? Yeah, since uh, TAPS had begun. And so they substantially reduced the uh, rates uh, as a result of that litigation, and it added significant value to all of our resources on the North Slope because the cost of getting them to market went down substantially. Was that it, the was that the Emirata Hess, or was that a separate? Yeah, uh, that issue? was. Yeah, those were uh, those were uh, royalty litigation issues with regard to how royalty taxes should be paid. That was a different set of issues. So at that point, um, you, you kind of. It seems to me you're kind of like when it comes to oil tax issues, you're kind of one of the guys people people refer to or talk to. Is that, is that kind of what after that? Well, I have uh, quite a background in uh, in uh, tax issues in general, and uh, I have enough accounting to sit for my CPA, and and I have my MBA, and and uh, I've done a lot of uh, highly technical, commercial, multi-party, massive litigation. In that one case that I was just talking about concerning the transportation rates on taps. Um, the state came out of the deal. They were litigating against us in the deal, and they came out of the deal a half a billion dollars a year ahead. The state was litigating against you? Yeah, the state was litigating against uh, us, trying to say that higher rates had to stay in effect, even though it was against their their own financial interest, about a half a billion dollar a year worth. So the lawsuit was against, I guess, was it Alieska, or was it against the three the th- different uh, producers? No, Alieska's uh, agent of the TAPS owners, um, uh, at the time, it's the uh, it's the carriers, the TAPS carriers, the actual people that had the tariffs on file that were willing to uh, to provide transportation under a common carriage tariff. So, 
you know, one of the big issues since oil started flowing, and I followed this pretty close. I got involved in kind of 2011. I was concerned about the budget because price of oil went up a lot in 2008, 2009, and money kind of flowed in. But we've always, it seems over the last 40 years, we've had different tax systems. There's been a gross and a net and a... They ch- you know, there was the HB 110 and the SB 21, and there was the repeat, repeal effort. So there's been all these different um, thoughts about how to tax the oil uh, industry. And now you're trying to, uh, you're behind an initiative for the, um, I guess, would it, be, would it be next year's ballot? I guess it depends on the signatures. Yes, uh, we hope it'll be on next year's ballot. And it's the Fair Share Act is the way I refer to it. Uh so explain a little bit about this, and I know it's basically targeting legacy fields, right, and, and not, as far as I understand, and not the newer newer fields. Well, let me, let me put it in a context before we get into the specifics, if I may. Sure. Um, so uh, first, uh, the, the idea of Alaska's share of its resources, uh, Alaska's fair share is the foundation on which our modern Alaska has been built. It's the foundation that created the permanent fund. It's the foundation that continues to support dividends. So this isn't a new concept. <clears throat> it goes all the way back to the Statehood Act when before statehood, 99% of the land in Alaska was owned by the federal government. And uh, so one of the arguments against uh, permitting us to become a state was is that we wouldn't be able to afford to operate a state under such remote conditions as we mm-hmm. were under uh, unless we had uh, some access to our natural resources. So the state, uh, provided, uh, the statehood act provided 103 million acres that the state could select. And the whole purpose of that was so that Alaska could afford to be a state and could afford to pay for a modern state. But we wouldn't have become a state. I mean, the, the discovery of Prudhoe kind of put, put the thing, the track in motion to allow us to become a, cause we could basically take care of ourselves. We, we could, support ourselves. Is that the idea? Well, I think it, it wasn't specific to Prudhoe at the time. It was just specific that uh, how is Alaska going to afford to be a state? And uh, and the answer to that was is through uh, realizing the benefit from our natural resources because that was our only opportunity at the time. So we got to become a state kind of with that understanding that we would we would get a, a share from the, from the resources, uh, from the development of our resources. So that was that was that was the concept, and <clears throat> and it's built into our constitution. Our constitution provides that uh, natural resources within Alaska that are owned by the state should be developed for the maximum mm-hmm. benefit of all Alaskans. And so the idea of a fair share—I mean, it's it's embedded in how we became a state, why we became a state, and how we can afford to be a state. It's embedded in our constitution. The idea that that we should get maximum benefit from our resources. Our, our our greatest our greatest leaders throughout Alaska, you know uh, Hammond, uh, uh, Hickel, uh, uh, Rick Halford, uh, Chancy Croft. These are the people that formed the economic relationship with the oil industry and that uh, framed the uh, the structure that uh, would allow us to realize the uh, our share of of, of oil resource. And uh, they've always uh, stood up for the proposition that we should get our our fair share. So this is this is going back to the pipeline when oil first started flowing. There's been discussions about the tax, what's appropriate, what's fair. Um, Goes well well back before the pipeline. It's it's, uh, but uh, the fair share. I mean, without our fair share, we wouldn't have a modern Alaska. We wouldn't have a permanent fund, and we wouldn't have dividends. We wouldn't have capital budgets. Uh, it's our share of the resources that makes Alaska uh, possible. 
So since the oil started flowing, we've I have to go back and check, but the I think one of the things I've always been critical of it seems like it seems like the tax system cha changes a lot. There's been many iterations going back to there was the ELF and the PPT and the ACES was a big one folks talked about, um, and there was SB twenty one. Why do you think? Compared to like Norway, for example, where it's been basically, as I understand, the same for a long time. Why do you think it, it's always always changing, or there's always pressures to to make to make to make changes in the system? Well, I think that uh, stability arises from fairness. If uh, if you and I are in a commercial relationship and it's fair for you and it's fair for me, it'll be stable for us. And uh, I think that uh, <clears throat> a lot of the changes that have occurred recently uh, to the uh, to uh, have diminished our share to the point where it's uh, no longer a sustainable share. I think that you've uh, we've we've gotten to the point where <clears throat> uh, we we get our fair share through four different uh, mechanisms. One is a royalty interest, which is not a tax; it's just a royalty interest that we maintain. That's usually about twelve and a half percent. The second is the production tax, and the third is the corporate income tax, and the, and the fourth is the ad valorem tax, or property taxes. The driver of our share has historically been the production tax. Now, <clears throat> our production tax, uh, our, our cumulative share, according to uh, Governor Hammond at the time, was is that Alaskans should get about a third of the gross uh, from the, uh, the gross income that arises from the sale of our oil. Yeah, for, I used to work briefly in the oil industry for for about a year, but before that, I worked in IT for many years, and I knew a lot of folks in the oil business. And my, my one buddy who had been BP for years and pretty high up, and he always said it should, it should be a third to the state, a third to the feds, and we should get a third. And he goes, that should just be very simple. He, he used to always tell me that. That was the that was the deal, and that was the deal that structured it. And when we started getting less than a third, like in. Um, uh, Governor Hammond would say that, uh, and put in his book, uh, Diapering the Devil, that we were being shortchanged hundreds of millions of dollars. And when he said that, we were we were getting uh, we were getting twenty seven percent of their gross at the time. Has has it always been so? I mean, I, I know when there was aces and there was the credits and the exploration credits, and you know, I I, I remember looking when I ran, first ran for office, looking at it and thinking, I mean, this is really complicated. Has it always been so complicated with the accounting? I mean, it seems to me. It, it just couldn't it be just simple where it's like here's the here's the oil barrel here we get this much you get this I mean it just seems like it's so complicated I remember during the exploration credits with aces they were they were processing credits from you know five or six years back because it was so much accounting involved I mean they had teams of accountants at the revenue department um, is that I mean is that by design is that do both sides try to make it complicated why can't well, why can't it be I guess, well, simpler I think it should be simpler and I think the fair share act makes it simpler. So, um, but uh, I mean, the bottom line here is is that uh, that uh, our share of our resources uh, should be fair to us. It should be fair to the producers. Uh, it should be uh, transparent uh, how we're doing, uh, and it should be based on oil policies that encourage the uh, the exploration and development of our natural resource. So, I mean. So this this turns back to what's the right policy and and how do you implement that policy, and uh, the Fair Share Act. I mean, there's there's our existing law. It's a mess. It's a mess from multiple perspectives. This is the SB twenty one. Yeah, the SB twenty one is the is the foundation for the existing law. Yes, and uh, and uh, and people have given it a 
go to see how it worked out for five years, and and it and it's been an abject failure. It's uh, resulted in about a billion and a half or two billion dollars massive tax giveaways, primarily to large, <clears throat> the largest and most profitable legacy fields that don't require any uh, any tax incentives in order to continue to operate. <clears throat> is this because of a, of a lower rate, or does it have to do with some of these net um, deductions or this per barrel deduction or per barrel credit? Well, all of the above. I mean, all of the above, and I can I can go through each one of them. But uh, but I think what I want Alaskans to know is is that our, our oil is over sixty dollars a barrel. We ought to have an economic boom up here. Instead of an economic boom, we have massive uh, government uh, deficit. We have the highest unemployment rate of any state in the United States. Uh, <clears throat> uh, our, our credit ratings have been downgraded. Uh, our dividends have been cut, and our permanent fund is at risk. And the reason for all of that is very simple. We don't get our fair share anymore. And when you don't get a fair share, you can't support a modern Alaska. You can't. You don't have a foundation for, for to grow the permanent fund to the way that we need it to be, and you don't have a. You don't have the. Uh, you don't have the ability to properly fund uh, our dividends. So talk talk a little bit about the, the the Fair Share Act and what it does foundationally to the to the current tax system and how it would what cha- what changes it would make. Sure. How to make it better. Um, well, first, first off, uh, it'd make everything transparent. So uh, we would know uh, how each producer is doing in each of the major legacy fields. Now, that's critical. So legacy is Prudo, Caparic. Yeah. The uh, <clears throat> so, so let me let me start. Let me back up and start there. The Fair Share Act only applies to the uh, the largest and most profitable fields in Alaska, and that is uh, the Prudhoe Bay and Caparic and Alpine. Okay. And uh, the criteria for a legacy field is is that it, it had to produce 40,000 barrels a day in the last calendar year, and it cumulatively had to produce over 400 million barrels. And so th- those are the only th- three fields that uh, qualify that, that there's going to be any change to under the Fair Share Act. So that's the important thing. And it's important because existing law doesn't distinguish uh, highly profitable fields that don't need any uh, incentives to continue to operate from the marginal fields out there that do need financial support in order to continue to operate. It's a one-size-fits-all kind of approach, Uh and that fails us at both ends. It doesn't allow us to give enough support for independent producers and new and developing fields on the one hand. On the other hand, we're giving massive, we're giving we're giving a billion and a half dollars away to massive legacy, highly profitable fields that don't require any of our support at all, and we're getting nothing for that in return. Is the, when you say the billion and a half, is that an actual? Uh, for, you're talking about forfeited money in tax revenue, or the per barrel credit, uh, or is that kind of both? Well, you have to you have to kind of model things, but probably the the best uh, the best uh, example of that was in 2013. Uh, in 2013, we had <clears throat> here. Let me be specific. In 2013, we had uh, 3.6 billion dollars collected under our production tax. And, and just that, just that fiscal year. What's that? Just that, and just 2013, the year. Yes. Yeah. The year wow. before, bef- the year before, 
Be nice to have that today. <laughs> well, well, good point, Jeff. <laughs> that, that's 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 why I'm here to talk to Alaskans about why what you just said is is exactly right. Uh, so uh, uh, so we so the year before the current uh, before Senate Bill twenty one was passed, we brought we brought in three point six billion dollars. The year afterwards, we brought in two billion dollars. So we was, dropped one point six billion dollars in one year. Did the price of oil change? No, the price of oil stayed the same, and the production was up a half a percent. So all things being equal, we should have gone up from three point six billion because of the Senate Bill Twenty One and the changes that the uh, that the industry uh, was able to achieve in Juneau. Because of those changes, we dropped a billion six just in that one year under those particular circumstances. So. That is the entire that is the entire issue with our economy right now. We have one point six billion dollars under those circumstances that's just leaving the state and not benefiting us. So uh, but I was going to go through and talk about the Fair Share Act and, and what it does that makes things different. So the first thing is is it's it's important to have these kinds of conversations based on reliable and credible information. I honestly believe that misinformation and fear would be the only reasons that an Alaskan would vote against the Fair Share Act. And <clears throat> and one of the characteristics of the Fair Share Act that's really important is, is that people will know how each producer is doing on each major field in Alaska. So we can have a conversation about what the best oil taxes policy should be on Alaska based upon the facts so that we can... We can try to make it fair for the producers. So this is try to make it share for share for fair for Alaskans too. That's basically about disclosure. Yeah, it says that the uh, it says that the uh, tax returns and their supporting schedules uh, under the Fair Share Act are public documents, and so you or I will be able to go and look at each field and look at the revenues and costs and profits that are associated with each field and decide for ourselves if we think Alaskans are getting a fair deal. And right now they're, they're, they're not public. Uh, right now we have uh, <clears throat> the uh, BP doesn't uh, publish anything. Uh, Exxon doesn't publish anything. ConocoPhillips has a limited geographic but doesn't break it down by field. And the information is reported to the Department of Revenue, but it's not available to Alaskans to discuss. Yeah, I, I actually and, uh, I and, did a story last year about, um, it's kind of an inside nuance thing, but there was this Mach 1 this loan that happened uh, based on these tax credits. And anyways, I did some FOIAs, and I got a lot of stuff back, but all the tax stuff was uh, redacted out. Well, exactly. So you, I, you can't get good information. And, and the policy by regulation is is they will give field information if there are, if there are, uh, if there are three producers or more uh, in that field. Well, what that means in practical terms is we can get general information about Prudhoe, but not producer-specific so we don't know how each producer is doing in Prudhoe. We just know how Prudhoe the field is doing generally. We, we have no information anymore on Kapark because, uh, because uh, Kapark is now uh, owned entirely by uh, ConocoPhillips. There are not three players. And in Alpine, we haven't had information for years. So, Would the, would the producers argue that that's, um, that's, how would you say that, that's kind of trade or that's competitive competitive advantage to have that information to themselves or yeah it it's it, i mean they would argue for uh, confidentiality of course it benefits them to do that and uh, but as a practical matter we're in business with producers to produce our oil in alaska 
And so I don't know how many businesses you're a partner in that you don't know how your partner's doing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, but, but I'm not in any businesses <laughs> where I don't know how the other people are doing in the business that I'm in. And uh, there is no possible competitive harm. There is no possibility for a competitive entrant into Prudhoe or Kapark or Alpine. The leases are already taken. The, their stakes are already defined. There is uh, no real risk of competitive harm to the industry at all by sharing this information. And we used to have uh, we used to have uh, field specific information, and uh, we've lost that since. So I think you got to balance how this should work out, and uh, unbalance. Uh, Alaskans ought to know. I mean, for crying out loud, if we can't figure out how <clears throat> how to balance our, our financial interest at the at the at North America's largest and most profitable producing field in Prudhoe Bay, and we can't even get information on it by producer. Uh, that's ridiculous after 40 years of its operation. How much do you, do you think on a, on a fundamental level, and this is something I've talked about for a while, we have you know people at Exxon and Conoco and BP, I mean, they're very, very, very smart people who, who for a living, they, they negotiate. And then, you know, how much do you think it is, we have a legislature that's mostly citizenry. I mean, you have different kind of folks who run for office, but they get $50,000 a year and Many of them have never been in business or they haven't been in, in the kind of business where you're having major negotiations. Um, how much of it is just that we're kind of, I don't want to say unmatched, but it's it's unequal when we're at the table, when there's a committee hearing, when there's discussions about this. I mean, th- those people are very smart. They're very good at what they do. And sometimes I feel like the legislators or the people who are in charge, maybe the government, they don't, they don't, they aren't, they're almost maybe unmatched a little bit when it comes to how they negotiate or how we decide this tech tax is that is that something that's part of the reason we've always had these complicated tax discussions well i think uh <clears throat> i think that uh i mean the oil industry uh bp and conical phillips and exxon uh, they they have the best and the brightest in the world because if they ask for something uh, and the legislature says sure mm, i mean that, I mean, <laughs> I mean i mean so first these are very sophisticated companies uh with tremendous uh, resources available uh and uh, and uh and the more complicated it is, the more likely uh, they are to be persuasive. So I ha- and, I, and I find no fault in anybody in the oil industry trying to optimize the value for their shareholders. That's their fiduciary right, responsibility. Yeah, that's that's gonna, their job. People are going to so, do. So, yeah, exactly. So I have no problem with uh, the industry. I've worked with the industry, and uh, uh, a lot of my litigation in the industry has been for oil companies. Most of it has been for oil companies. So I have no problem with the industry. I'm a I'm a conservative, pro-growth, pro-oil, pro-development. Uh, independent voter is who I am, and and that's uh, probably a typical Alaskan. Mm-hmm. That's a, sort of the category for the typical Alaskan. So, and I've got no problem with them taking whatever position they need to optimize their shareholder wealth. The problem I have <clears throat> is that we need to do what's right by our shareholders, Alaskans, and so uh, we need uh, our administration and we need our legislature to stand up. Uh, and negotiate fair deals for our resource. And they have, uh, and in recent years, the last five years, uh, they have failed to get even close, and they failed to even discuss uh, what our fair share should be or what the uh, what the oil policy should be. So they've even, they've even, uh, they even they haven't even had the conversation. And so this conversation has to occur. We are getting uh, so much less than we ever have historically that we can't support a modern Alaskan. We can't support 
we can't support our permanent fund growth and we can't support dividends to the state anymore. So it's reached a point of just absurdity. So I think that we need to step up, Alaskans need to step up and negotiate a better deal for oil and quit giving it away. So the, the way it works uh, is if you do, do an initiative and the legislature passes, I, I guess the language is something similar or a similar bill, then the initiative um, goes away. And this happened with Jason Gren and the the ethics bill. He uh, he tried to do an initiative, ethics initiative, and the legislature passed something pretty similar to the uh, initiative. Is that something you think might happen next session? Because there's been some talk about maybe look, looking at reviewing oil taxes, and if they if they did that, is that a, a, in your mind a, a win maybe, or do you do you want it to go to the initi- initiative? Uh, well, uh, I mean, the reason that I'm involved in this issue is because of the failure of our political process to even address it, even have a conversation about it. So uh, so I believe that Alaskans know better. I believe that Alaskans will make the right decision. I believe that Alaskans will not be persuaded that taking less for their oil will mean more for them. I That's what I believe. Uh I don't believe that our current administration or the current legislature uh, are prepared uh, to have a full conversation and and pass a, and, and pass uh, pass and pass a bill that will result in us getting our fair share. Now, I hope I'm entirely wrong. I hope I'm entirely wrong, and I hope that uh, the responsibility that is the administration and is the legislatures to lead and to maintain our fair share, like all of our greatest political leaders have for the last 40 years, I hope they step up to the, step up to the bar and ring the bell. That's what I hope happens. I love, I love ringing the bell. Yeah. Yeah. You know, buy around for the house, but, 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 but it, it, it's painful to watch the, the, uh, um, the, the complete failure of our political leadership to have the conversation after we've given away our fair share. So, so I, I hope that they do. The standard is substantially similar. And so they have to pass a substantially similar bill in order to, in order to remove it from the ballot. Uh, that would uh, be wonderful if our legislature stepped up and did th- did that. I know that uh, certain legislators are having drafted a substantially similar bill now to the Fair Share Act, and I think that they intend to introduce it. So that'll be an option that will be available to them. So has has you turned in the initial signatures? As far as I understand, the state they still haven't approved the initiative, right? Yeah, no, they haven't. Uh, they have until the uh, 16th, I believe, uh, of this month uh, to do it. I hope that they do, and we get on to gathering signatures. But, then, but who's to tell? And then once once approved, the state prints signature booklets. And do you do you have to get the signatures before the session starts for it to be on the in order to be cur- next year's ballot? Yes, yes, that's absolutely right. How many signatures? Uh, it's a percentage of the vote or something, isn't it? Yeah, it's a, there's a there's a there's a total percentage, and then there's a percentage uh, by district. There's a distribution requirement. We need twenty eight and a half thousand signatures, and we need to get a certain percentage of uh, three uh, of uh, thirty of the house districts. So, if you got it in the middle of October, that give you about three months to yeah, to which this. which which I think we'll be able to achieve. I mean, the recall folks got I think forty thousand or something, forty nine thousand, and. Well, they did. They did. And, uh, and, and, you know, the one thing about, uh, about the Fair Share Act is, is that it actually represents a solution to the problems that we have. If you're an Alaskan and you're out there and you disagree with the, with the uh, budget cuts, the nature of them, or, or, you know, our university funding or, 
senior services or or rural electrical support or our ferry system support. If, if, if you disagree with the budget cuts, the, the Fair Share Act represents a solution to that problem. You can, uh, if, 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 if you're a supporter of the permanent fund, if you're a supporter of our dividends, our dividends are being cut and our permanent fund isn't growing anymore. They were built, uh, they, were, they were funded with our fair share and we don't get a fair share anymore. And so you're seeing cut dividends. So if you're one of those folks, that you ought to support this. And and if you're <clears throat> and if you favor jobs for Alaska, I mean, keeping a billion more dollars of Alaskan money in Alaska uh, and having a capital budget. I mean, we haven't had a meaningful capital budget in Alaska since the Fair Share Act, uh, since uh, Senate Bill 21 has yeah, been they, passed. They used to be at the peak; they were a couple of two billion dollars, and now they've been in the hundred million range. For- we don't we don't have we don't we don't uh, we don't have an economy that's supporting jobs because we're giving away our oil do you think uh, i mean i'm sure the other side's going to say this is just another change and and this is going to you know create instability as and like i've said i think one of our biggest problems is we tend to change the system all the time but is that do you think that's a a reasonable argument or if they say look it's another another change and it could well, be oh two things i mean first um I think that uh, uh, the reason that it's changed so much is because the industry has passed so many changes that has eroded our fair share. So, of course, the other side that's been successful in eroding our fair share down to uh, down to giving away our oil is going to suggest that uh, any further changes would be would be a problem. So, but the bottom line on fairness is the bottom line on stability is 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 there a fair balance between Alaskans and and the producers right now? And if you if you uh, take uh, ConocoPhillips' most recent annual annual report, for example, <clears throat> they've increased their dividend twice to their shareholder. They've paid one point four billion dollars in dividends. They had a stock repurchase program of three billion dollars. Their board of directors authorized another $9 billion of stock buybacks. Their credit ratings are going up, and they are making $26 a barrel from the sale of our oil, which is more... <laughs> Business sounds which pretty is, good. Which is, which is more than than they can than any producer can make anywhere else in the world. Business sounds now, pretty, pretty good over well, there. Well, <laughs> you know, so, so... And then compare that to Alaska, the, the, it, where we're cutting our dividends, where, where we've spent all our savings, where... Where we're, uh, where we're, where we've been, our credit rating has been in the dumps uh, since Senate Bill Twenty One passed, and there's no solution, and there's no solution on the horizon for how to solve our deficit problem. Yeah, it's interesting. Earlier, you, you mentioned uh, the, the state cuts to the services, and then the, you know the dividend. And I was at this uh, rally a few months ago. It was outside the legislature. It was one of the after the budget veto rally and uh, before the override vote. And it was a lot of people there, hundreds of people, and it was mostly the kind of progressive side of the aisle, but protesters. But there was a guy there talking to a woman, and I, I just watched their interaction. And she was very kind of progressive side, you know, save our state type people. And um, he was a kind of permanent fund defender guy, very, very on the right conservative side. And they were kind of arguing about different things. And I just was kind of watching them, and they were being polite. But at one point, um, she told him, "Well." If we could just eliminate these tax credit, these per barrel credits, or if we could just get more money, 
from the oil industry, you know, we could, we could have a good budget and we could have a full dividend. And he looked at her and he goes, well, I can't disagree with that. Yeah, you know, they, well, shook, they shook well, hands that, and that's kind of when I said, that, wow, this is... That, that's, that's the whole point here. They both should vote for the fair share. Act. I think they would. But, okay, they that, both should. That's when I realized Because it, it doesn't make any sense to sit around and argue about how to spend money or what the priorities for spending should be or how efficient spending should be when you don't have any money to spend. And that's the situation that it's Alaska's in. It doesn't matter who's making the decisions. It doesn't matter what the priorities are. We have a massive uh, deficit in state spending because we are giving away our oil. And there are no solutions for either of those two. There's no solutions for more dividends. There's no, there's no solution being proposed that would uh, eliminate what are appear to be draconian cuts that undercut a modern Alaska. So it doesn't matter what your perspective is. If, 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 you're, if you're for Alaska, then you ought to want to say that we should get our fair share. We shouldn't get, we shouldn't get more than our fair share. It should, and, and to be a fair share, it has to be fair to the producers, and it has to be fair to Alaskans. It has to be fair to everybody. But right now, we're not even in the ballpark of correct. And, 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 and where this decision should decide depends on the specific policies of it. The Fair Share Act is for transparency. So if you're an Alaskan, you want to know uh, how the fields, uh, major legacy fields are performing. You want to know what the costs are. You know, it's like you hear all this misinformation. Alaska is a high cost place to produce, for example. You know, it costs $12 a barrel to produce the operating cost from Prudhoe Bay to produce a barrel of oil. And they put $2 a barrel of uh, capital investment into Prudhoe to produce it. $14 a barrel is what it cost to produce uh, to, to wellhead Prudhoe from Prudhoe Bay Field. They're bringing in $65 a barrel. They're making $26 or, or more a barrel from Prudhoe Bay. So, I mean, we need facts. If you want transparency, if you're an Alaskan and you want to know how it's going and you want accurate information so you can have a conversation, vote for the Fair Share Act. The, the rates, a 4% rate, you know, you can't go anywhere in the world and find a 4% gross rate. You know, this is, this is like uh, two-thirds of North Dakota. If you go overseas, you mentioned, uh, you mentioned Norway. Oh. They, they give 15% of the profit away over there. If you go to the the Middle East, they have uh, they they don't lease out. Typically, what they do is they bring in a, a major producer to manage their field for them, and they give them their costs, their reasonable cost of managing it back, and they get two or three bucks a barrel. Okay, they're getting twenty six bucks a barrel out of Alaska production. So I think the bottom line here is is that if you want transparency. <clears throat> uh, that, uh, that if you want, uh, you know, a fair share from these fields and progressivity. I mean, one reason $60 a barrel isn't helping us now uh, anymore. It used to be $60 a barrel and, and Katie bar the door in Alaska's economy. And now we're just struggling. We're, we're doing the, we're the worst economy that I know of. Yeah, so the progressivity <clears throat> was eliminated under, ACES had a progressive progr progr Yeah, it, it largely was eliminated. There's a little bit, uh, the tax credits can kind of phase out at very high levels, but for all practical purposes, yes, progressivity was eliminated. Well, we believe that if the price of oil goes up a lot, and we believe that if uh, producer profits go up a lot, that our rate, our share, our percentage share should go up a little. And, uh, and likewise, if uh, producer profits go down, uh, then our share should go down a little bit. So we share a little bit of the risk, but uh, 
Uh, but progressivity is very important when 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 our resources are happening. You know, the oil prices just spiked uh, because of the events in Saudi Arabia, and uh, yeah, I saw that. And and our and our and our percentage share didn't didn't move didn't move a penny. So prog- so transparency, a, f- a fair a fair revenue stream, which won't even be by the way, if the Fair Share Act is passed, it won't even take us back to where we were under ACES. This isn't some extreme position. This isn't some extreme bill. Uh, historically, we have averaged about 27%. The original deal was about a third. This will take us back to less than our historic average uh, uh, if the Fair Share Act is passed. So, so if, it does, if it does pass, I believe the way it works is, is it, it's enacted for two years. The legislature can't do anything for two years, correct? But then they, they can, after two years, they can make changes... Yeah, they sure. can. They can. Uh, they can make a. They can amend it. Uh, they can amend it right out of the gate if they want. Uh, let me. Let me point out one other thing that's happening. That uh, is that that under current law. As uh, uh, you can deduct costs from the Prudhoe or Prudhoe Bay share, that don't have anything to do with Prudhoe Bay. So, for example, as ConocoPhillips is developing NPRA. Um, which is on federal land, then they are deducting their costs from our share of Prudhoe Bay profits. So it's treated, so, it's treated all as kind of a pool of money, I guess? Or? Yeah, they, 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 it's called ring fencing, whether each field stands on its own or not. Uh, that gives them a tremendous and unfair competitive advantage over new entrants. It washes away the money from our legacy fields and puts off actually even realizing profits out of our productive fields for decades. What's what's about to happen is because of the expected spend in NPRA, our current budget deficit is about to get three to four hundred million dollars a year worse increased because as they start spending money in NPRA, it's going to reduce our production tax another 300 to 400 million dollars will the will the state npra or anwar what, what would the is it determined yet what the state would get from from yeah the state the state doesn't have a royalty interest in npra uh it's diverted to uh, to other entities so here we are alaskans uh with uh supporting a third of the cost going into conoco phillips development of npra we're about to increase our deficit another three or four hundred million dollars developing an oil field on federal land that we don't even have a royalty, a direct royalty would there be interest a in. Would there be a production tax? Well, uh, that's what we're sitting here talking about. The production tax that uh, is, is exists under Senate Bill 21 has been negative three of the last five years. There's the credits, the paid credits that were uh, that were greater than, than the actual collections under it. And <clears throat> so, uh, and, and, and that's... And, and, let me let me just stay on that for just a minute, Jeff, because that's important. So, the production tax was running negative. <clears throat> People were critical of the credits. So, what was the legislative response? These are the per barrel credits. Yes, the per barrel credits that go into the net calculation. So, what was the legislative response? They threw all the paid credits are only are only necessary for people that don't have production. So, it's the new. It's the new competitive entrants that are coming into Alaska that are drilling holes that don't have anything to take, no, no revenue to take a credit against. And so you try and make them 
put them in the same economic spot as the legacy producers, and so you pay their credits rather where the legacy producers just subtract their credit off of their revenue. This is like an oil surge, for example. Yeah, oil surge or in the Cook Inlet. So, so what did the legislature do when they addressed uh, credits? They threw all the independents and all the small producers under the bus. They eliminated all of their paid credits, and they still allowed $8 a credit $8 a barrel to be deducted off of Prudhoe Bay, the largest, most profitable legacy fields in North America and perhaps the world. Uh, and they let them keep taking their credits. So with the, with the independence, you're talking about the exploration credits. I'm uh, talking about the $8 a barrel development credits that come off of the net calculation. When they went in to try and address the credit issue, the way that they chose to address it was to throw all the new guys and all the small guys under the bus that needed the support of those credits. They threw them all under the bus and still haven't paid them. There's still a billion dollars that we owe them, which is one of the worst things we've done for the development of our resource in a long time. That's the issue where they and, tried to pass the, 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 well, they passed a bonding bill, right? To pay well, yeah. Well, bonding. well, you wouldn't have to pass a bonding bill if you got, if you had a fair share of your production tax to begin with and could afford to pay the credits. But the reason that we don't is because we're letting we're letting uh, Exxon and BP and ConocoPhillips subtract eight dollars a eight eight dollars a barrel off of every barrel that's produced in in out of Prudhoe Bay for no reason at all, and and they're increasingly deducting the cost uh, unrelated entirely to Prudhoe Bay from from our share too. I wanted to ask you. I know it's kind of a separate uh, topic, but a little related. Um, kind of briefly, why, why do you think BP decided to? to decide to make, make the decision to sell off the assets to Hillcorp? Well, BP is, uh, BP is, uh, has, uh, BP is an excellent company. Uh, they have not identified uh, Alaska's oil assets as core to their, uh, core to their goals uh, in over two decades. In 1999, they shut down their oil exploration office in Alaska and left Alaska, and they've been largely in harvest mode with regard to the oil resources. And, uh, and they've uh, used uh, their uh, cash flow from Alaska from these major fields. I mean, what's happening is, is, <clears throat> is that uh, they're working on improving their margins on Prudhoe and uh, taking the cash and, and developing projects in other parts of the world. And what we're doing is giving them a half a billion dollars a year to cut Alaska jobs <clears throat> and to increase their margins uh, uh, and so that's what Prudhoe's, uh, but BP, to answer your question directly, they've been exiting the Alaska oil field. Uh, their, uh, uh, their oil spill in the Gulf was a huge thing, cost them between 60 and $65 billion, hit their budget, hit their balance sheet, and they, they started selling as non-core assets to do that. Um, I remember when I was working back in IT, they had the Badami field, and the company was in, in Savant, and that was right when the... Deepwater Horizon happened, and they they quickly accelerated the transfer of Badami to, to Savant. Well, you may you may happened. recall they were they were trying to sell uh, the, all of their Alaskan assets to Apache right afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I remember so that. so uh, they, so they've been on the way out of Alaska for a while um, uh, for reasons to do with how they've identified their core assets and how they uh, and what's 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 the best match for them. And they've decided twenty years ago that the best match w- didn't involve. Alaska oil. So if it, if it gets approved by the state and the booklets get, get printed and you get the signatures before the session, it'll be on the 2020 ballot. If if not, uh, it would be on the 2022 ballot. Is that? 
Yeah, well, right? um, yeah, the, the, if there's no uh, interim election between that, uh, yeah, that's true. So, that, I mean, that's the basic structure we have until the legislature uh, convenes in order to get it on the 2020 ballot. That's our goal. That's what we're focused on. Uh, if we achieve that goal, then uh, my, my personal goal is to give Alaskans a choice. I think we've had a, a failure of political leadership in Alaska. And uh, I think that uh, the legislature hasn't been successful in, in addressing uh, better oil policies. And we've adopted very poor oil policies and we're sacrificing our fair share and giving away our oil. And so, um, so I think that uh, I think that I believe that my goal is to give Alaskans a choice in their own fate. So and you, I believe that Alaskans are going to make the right choice. Are you anticipating this being a, a costly endeavor? I mean, the last Stand for Salmon initiative, the Stand for Alaska group raised, I think it was over $10 million com- combined from a lot of the, you know, kind of um, resource development well, folks. I mean, uh, what we're trying to do, Senate Bill 21 gave away $1.5 billion to the industry a year. We're trying to get back a little less than a billion. So that's our goal. We expect that if you're asking for a billion back from the industry, that they will finance uh, they will they will finance it. In order to pass Senate Bill 21, they spent 15 million dollars uh, persuading the legislature, and they spent 15 million dollars opposing the repeal mm-hmm. of Senate Bill 21. So they, they have 25 or 30 million dollars into uh, in into uh, in into putting in place these massive tax giveaways for these largest and most profitable legacy fields that are completely unnecessary and for which we're getting nothing. Our production is down uh, since uh, Senate Bill 21 passed. Uh, <clears throat> the uh, capital investment in Prudhoe is a quarter of what it was when uh, Senate Bill 21 passed. We've lost five and a half thousand jobs from the industry. Uh, production is down. We have gotten absolutely nothing for a billion and a half a year. And I would I would ask Alaskans, you know, if you're going to invest a billion and a half dollars a year, then you ought to invest it wisely, just like the industry would. You should expect uh, your money back and a return. And we're not getting our money back or a return. So uh, Senate Bill 21. We've given it a go for a few years. We've taken a look at it. We've noticed that uh, many of the representations about how, how deep a cut it was were, were misrepresented to Alaskans. What it would achieve was misrepresented to Alaskans. It just doesn't work, and it doesn't represent good policies. We need to level the playing field between the legacy fields. <clears throat> we need to help our new producers come up here. We want a more viable, stronger, uh, open a competitive North Slope, so that our resources are efficiently developed. One of the things I talked about then was was a I don't know the date exactly, but it was a million barrels. Yeah, yeah, that was yeah return to a million barrels. So I, but I, I, I guess if you got if oil search and um, these other projects, Millie Point, and, all, and I guess if all that stuff came online, there'd be I guess a couple hundred thousand more barrels a day. But a million seems. I mean, is that re, is that realistic to get to to a million? Well, yeah, that was one of the representations made. But what I'd say is is the Fair Share Act doesn't impact uh, oil search at all. It leaves the existing law in place for oil search mm-hmm. until its fields qualify as legacy fields. And that is a decade away. And there'll be uh, – uh, so – and the legislature can change the bill in a couple of years, like you pointed out. And so this doesn't represent uh, political risk to new developers coming in here and trying to develop our resource. In fact – 
from a new developer's point of view, Alaska is a place in turmoil. There's tremendous political risk here because we don't even have a balanced budget and things are kind of going to hell in a handbasket up here. So from their point of view, a new a new explorer's point of view, the Fair Share Act manages all that risk in a way that just uh, has the fields that can afford to carry a little more, the, the legacy fields carry a little bit more that doesn't require them to pay more too. So how good can it be for a new producer that all the risk that they're facing, the political risk they're facing in Alaska is resolved in a way that doesn't harm in any way yeah. their business it's model? It's an interesting point you make there about... Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it's about the instability, the budget. Because you're right, I mean, when there's budget instability, the, the first place we tend to go is oil industry. We need, we need more, more revenues. Well, and, that, and that's where the legislature went uh, when they took on the credits. And what did they do? They, they threw the new uh, producers uh, and the producers that needed support under the bus. And then they let the legacy fields that are just pumping out cash that's leaving Alaska they let those continue to realize their credits. Well, it makes no sense at all. Weren't some of those credits maybe over the top? I mean, there were some that they were deducting, you know, capital investments on runways or on just any anything maybe unrelated to directly unrelated to producing oil. And and then some of the comp- smaller companies were were getting a lot of credits, and there wasn't really maybe ever an ability for them to produce. I, mean, I agree, we should be incentivizing the production, but it seemed like at some point it was just kind of a. A lot of credits were available and a lot of money was spent. Well, you, you raise the question of how to efficiently uh, subsidize or incentivize the, the development of our resource. And for the most part, let me say that if we just eliminate the barriers to entry that are associated with uh, development on the North Slope, that we will have more people up here and, uh, uh, and, uh, and, and there's no reason to provide massive tax incentives to the largest and most profitable legacy fields and to give away a billion and a half dollars to those fields. That's where 85% of the revenue is. That's where the production's at. That's where the issue is. So we want more independence in Alaska. We want more uh, development of marginal fields in Alaska. Uh, we want to efficiently target, if, we, if we're going to target incentives, we want them to work. We probably want them to be linked to production levels. We want, we, want, we want a result. We should want something for our money. And what we're doing is just dumping money out of the state, supporting fields that don't require any support at all. Well, it's, uh, it's been a great conversation, Mr. <laughs> Brennan. Very, very complicated stuff, but I'm glad you came and you, you uh, talked with me. It's, uh, you you, you Talk about it in a way that's kind of understandable for me and I think the listeners too. So, Well, uh, it's been my pleasure to be here. Thank you for your good questions and, uh, and, uh, and I hope Alaskans get out and volunteer and support the Fair Share Act. I'm sure you'll keep us updated with the, uh, the state's decision and then going forward on the, the signature gathering. It'd be my pleasure. Okay, thanks again, oh. Mr. Brennan, for coming in. Appreciate it. Thank you, Jeff. Uh, folks, if you uh, have an idea for a podcast or want to do a podcast, let me know and stay tuned for the next one. Landline.